Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Buck Anderson. I'm the pastor of leadership development here at Grace, and it's my privilege to be with you here this morning. We're going to be looking at a, a passage that's got the condemned word in it, which is now I see why Blake probably asked me to preach this one, and he might take this one off. This is a tough passage. It's also one of the longest passages we're going to deal with in the book of Romans. Last week, we took a look at the condemnation of the Gentiles, or those that are self-righteous, that have a law unto themselves. And Paul is going to continue the prosecution today by calling now God's covenant people, Israel, into the courtroom and see how they stand under the scrutiny of the Word of God. I, like Jason, was watching the game last night, and I had many reasons for the Aggies to want to win, but one of them also included, Lord, I don't want to preach a message on condemnation if the Aggies lose this game tonight. I just don't want to. So that was, in essence, probably why we won. I prayed that we would win so I would feel good. It is a tough passage. It'd be foolish for me not to um, sober us a bit, that we might... uh, in essence, uh, button our chin straps, if you will, for this passage. It is a courtroom scene, and it is a, a tough scene. It is a, a scene of prosecution. As I was thinking about that image as I was preparing, I realized that if I could have cloned myself, I have certainly enjoyed my ministry and time in 16 years as the academic dean of the College of Biblical Studies before I moved here, and then five years ago we moved here and enjoyed pastoral ministry as well. But I got to tell you, I would have loved to have been a trial lawyer. I would have loved to have duked it out in a courtroom. And I started thinking about it. And no, I didn't go to law school, but I know a lot about lawyers because I've watched a lot of TV. (laughs) Some of you older ones will realize Perry Mason, my first hero, and his assistant, Della Street. Every week they'd crack some case and win it in court. And my famous, or my favorite rather, defense attorney, Atticus Finch, Gregory Peck's role in To Kill a Mockingbird. His defense of Tom Robinson inspired me. In the 80s, I learned about the glamour of the law from L.A. Law, and on Sunday nights, I watched The Good Wife and watch her duke it out in court. But my favorite attorney of all was a prosecutor named Caffey in A Few Good Men. As he comes against this dude, the evil Colonel Jessup, and finally gets Jessup to admit, (laughs) did you order the code red? And cleaning it up a bit, Jessup answers, yes, I did order the code red. The prosecutor got the confession from the guy on the stand. And it's sort of that image. Unfortunately, we're on the stand today in Romans two and three. And our prosecutor is not this fine looking fellow, but God through the apostle Paul, bringing scripture after scripture, legal proof after legal proof, convicting us that we are unrighteous before the Lord. We, like the covenant people of God, the Jews, are condemned because of our practice of unrighteousness. And we're going to spend just a moment making sure we remind ourselves of this most important term in the book of Romans especially. There is two components to this idea of righteousness. The righteousness of God is, first of all, who he is. It's part of his character. It is his character himself. It's not something he's added. He is righteous. He is the standard of which we are to meet. And he also is interested in how things are done. Not only meeting the standard, but meeting the standard the correct way. My favorite verse for that is Psalm 11.7. There's three little components to that. Let's focus just for a moment on each subsection 
For Yahweh is righteous. Righteous, that word sadiq, from which the word melchizadik comes from, this idea of meeting a standard. He himself is that standard. But the key phrase in this verse is the middle one to me. He loves it. He loves it. It's not something he does to make us better. He loves standards, and he loves seeing standards met. And so the upright can then behold his face when the standard is met. And we're going to talk about that really as the essence of the book of Romans. We can learn pretty much what we need to know about righteousness or its opposite, unrighteousness or sin, from a fifth grade math test. Notice some of them the student got right. Number one and number four, for example, the student met the standard. The answer was correct. The problem was worked the correct way. The correct answer was given. A check mark was given. You are righteous. You got it right. Those that have X's, they were, he was unrighteous. He sinned. He fell short. He veered from the correct method, which did not produce the correct answer, and thus was unrighteous in the answer. Sometimes we get so complicated and think about all these huge terms. Just remember, righteousness at the root of it is the simple concept of being right. It's opposite, unrighteous, or sin is not meeting a standard. And that's what we're going to see in the, in the book of Romans especially is this gospel that's presented to us in which here is a standard that we are required to meet as an unbeliever. And he's going to convict us today of falling short of that standard. We're familiar with Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's next week. The reason that Paul can so cryptically say that in Romans 3.23 is the work that we're going to do here today. Meticulously, verse by verse, going through and allowing Paul to prove his point that we indeed do not meet that standard. So the gospel, it reveals, therefore, that God has standards and the righteousness of God is revealed when he saves all who believes. For he has not lowered his standard. He has allowed his son to be his standard meter. And all those that are in his son meet his standard and thus reveal that God is very serious about this business called righteousness and meeting standards. So the big idea of the whole book of Romans is really that God is proven right. He's seen to be the right one, the righteous one, if you will, by making all things right through Jesus Christ. Righteousness, therefore, as you might imagine, is the thread of the tapestry that works itself all throughout the book of Romans. Every chapter revolves around some aspect of righteousness. We've seen in the first chapter, we're introduced into the concept of righteousness. We're now in the latter portion of the second section, the one in yellow, that God is righteous in his judgment. He's right to judge. He has a right to judge. And in his judgment, he will judge rightly. And we've seen him last week bring his case against the self-righteous or the Gentiles. And this week, he'll bring his case against the Jews, the covenant people of God. And in the last section, he'll bring both the Gentile and the Jews back into the courtroom to stand before the bar of God to see what their verdict is. Righteousness, as you might imagine, continues weaving on in Romans. In our section, we are condemned of being unrighteous. And so in about 30 minutes, we're going to be left in a predicament. How can we get out of this mess in which we are unrighteous? The idea of justification comes in the book of Romans. 
this idea of justification that God works in us through the gospel to declare us legally right in God's eyes. And then once we're legally right in God's eyes, he can go about the business of sanctifying us, of making us more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ as we grow in our relationship with him. That's chapters 6 through 8. God is also seen personally, and we're going to spend some time on that today, loyal and faithful because it's the right thing to do to remain loyal and faithful to his covenant people, Israel. We'll touch upon that today, and in chapters 9, 10, and 11, that's the essence of what those chapters are about, that God is righteous to remain faithful in his relationship with Israel. And finally, in the further sanctification of our lives, in all aspects of our lives, we see in chapter 12 through 16 that God is righteous there. So last week, Gentiles. This week, the two red arrows, the Jews' need for righteousness in 2.17 through 3.8. And then everybody comes back to court, both the Gentiles and the Jews come back to court, and we see that we are all in need of God's righteousness. The Jews' need for righteousness in our first section today really has two little sections. First of all, that the Jews have a great privilege, a wonderful array of things that were laid at their feet in which they participated with God. But we're going to see, unfortunately, that that privilege alone was insufficient. It was not enough. And in light of that tension, if the Jews will be proved to be unfaithful, even with their great privilege, how will we react to God? Is God right in doing that? Should he have chosen them? Should he eschew them and move with someone else? Or will we see God in a different light, that he is faithful and righteous to stay in in covenant with his people regardless of their behavior? So we'll see in this section that the Jews' great privilege was indeed pretty much based on the fact that they were the teachers of the law of God. Every Jewish apostle, every Jewish prophet that we'll see in the Bible had this wonderful privilege. As a nation, they were given the law of God. Their duty was to teach each other and the Gentiles of what Yahweh was like. They were a light in a dark place. And so they were given this wonderful privilege of being teachers of the law, but they will be guilty of not obeying the very law that they teach. And then they will counter that argument we're going to see with what about circumcision? If we fail in this area of teaching, what about the fact that we are of the circumcision of Abraham? They'll argue. Paul is going to dismiss both of those arguments very summarily in this next section. But this will become the essence of what we're going to look at here uh, in in, in these next few moments. They were the teachers of the law of God. Notice, if you've got your Bibles, look there also, or I'll have it here on the overhead. But notice this key structural marker in 217, that word Jew, uh, lets us see that he's focusing now the camera on the nation of Israel, God's covenant people. He's just got through talking to the self-righteous and later in that earlier section seen as the Gentiles, those that have laws to themselves, not of the laws of God. And they stand condemned under their very laws for they couldn't keep them. Now to the Jew, he says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, that is the Mosaic law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge of the truth, 
all those things was pretty much their job description. Think about it. This, in essence, is what Israel was charged to do. God's covenant people were not only the teachers of the law, but because they were the teachers of the law, they had this unique privileged position of having access to the law. They knew his will and could get direct intervention from God about the things of the Lord. They could get discernment from the Lord. They were, to be, they were instructed directly by God so that they could be guides to the blind and correctors of the foolish and teachers of the immature. And these will be the very things that the prosecutor will bring against them and see how they've done in light of their job description. And as I think we might imagine, it's not going to go very well. You see, they were indeed teachers of the law, but they were guilty of not obeying the law. The great irony is, is the very thing they were to teach, they failed in keeping personally. Notice how he does it. You therefore who teach one another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You say that one should not commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, but you rob idol, you rob temples, you boast in the law, though you're breaking the law, you dishonor God. Look at this passage. How would you like this one come against you? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The people of great privilege who were set aside by God to carry the light in the dark place, in fact, often spoke those words but did not obey those words. It's the epitome of hypocrisy. And none of, it have, none of us have escaped that. But as a whole, the nation dropped the baton on their portion of the relay race. And as a result, those to whom they were to minister were actually confused about the person of God based on the actions and behavior of the messenger. And because of you, covenant people, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. A tough charge to come their way. They are guilty of not obeying the law. And you see how he did it? There were five little couplets that were found there. It's very powerful. They teach, you teach others, but not yourselves. He says, you tell others not to steal, but you steal. You condemn adultery, but you commit adultery. You condemn idolatry, but you practice idolatry. I told you to boast in the law and to espouse the law, but you dishonor God. And as a result, God's name is blasphemed. One after another, he checks them off against their very job description, what they were to do. Yes, indeed, they had a great privilege. They were to be the teachers of the law, but they were guilty of not having obeyed the law. And so they counter with an argument that could only be unique to the covenant people Israel. But what about circumcision? We've got that. It's a big deal to be circumcised in the Old Testament, okay? And in fact, it goes back even further than the Mosaic law as we see God's thought about it here, however, for indeed circumcision is of value. Notice if you practice the law. If you're not adverse to marking up your Bible, circle that first if. For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. What do you mean, Paul? What's going on here with this idea of circumcision and all that he's talking about? What Paul's going to do is he's going to take the physical rite of circumcision that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, where Abraham was charged with being circumcised. And you might recall from Abraham came Isaac. 
And from Isaac came Jacob. And from Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel that formed the nation of Israel. And to go back to some right that Abraham was given and that I can participate in, a Jew would say, that's a big deal. My circumcision renders me righteous before you, Lord. Right? And the answer we're going to see, of course, is going to be no. It was the key distinction of the Jews, but it also referred not only to the physical act of circumcision, but also the more spiritual or figurative use of the language, this imagery of cutting away. In fact, the cutting away figurative image is the predominant use of of the concept of circumcision in the Bible. Like our hearts might be hard or, or fat or have excess of flesh around it, he says, cut out that heart of flesh so that the true heart of God might be revealed. That imagery of cutting away is really the idea behind circumcision. Yet the Jews remained happy to only involve themselves in the right and not obey as well, and thus missed the major idea, which is this. The right of circumcision without obedience is in fact unrighteous, and obedience without the right is righteous. Now, if you're a good Jew and you have boasted in the law and your people have come from the, from the priestly line or the teacher lines, and you are properly circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, that is a source of great pride for you. What they missed was, no, that's just a source of great privilege for you. To whom much is given, much is required. What I require of you, God speaking, is obedience. And they were settling for just the rights themselves, just the position, just uh, the, the bullets on the resume instead of actually performing, actually delivering the goods. For they'll be condemned on what they fail to do, not who they are. They have great privilege, but they fail to keep, be in keeping with the great privilege that they enjoy. You see, for he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and the obedient one, his praise is not from men, but from God. From Genesis to Revelation, God is interested in men and women who are properly related to him and then obey his commands, who get right with him salvifically, who come to know him as Savior, and then go about the business of being evermore discipled and conformed to the image of his son. It's not okay to just settle here. We might have that same tension. I've enjoyed the privilege of being a believer and all the rights that come from that. But am I also practicing what he's called that believer to do? He wants it both. And he will never settle. He'll never lower the bar to just where one of those things is okay. He wants all of us. And he wants us all to obey him as he has laid out in the scripture. Now, the, image, the question that might emerge now is, we're starting to see things aren't going very well here for the, the covenant people of God. We've already seen the, the Gentiles in the previous court case not come out too well. We're going to call them back here in a moment. We're going to anticipate that they're probably not going to do too well. We're seeing that the covenant people of God are not doing too well. And so our question might be, though, well, what about God in all this? Did, did God choose someone that he shouldn't have chosen? Should he just start over with someone else? Should we just remove Israel from our, our scenes and the scriptures and replace them with the church? Or will both be maintained? I think what's going to help here is to set it up just a bit for in 3, 1 through 8, where we're turning now, 
we're going to see that Paul will make the case that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God's covenant program and his inclusion of the Jews is not a mistake, and I should have also added, and will have a future. God's covenant program thus becomes the focus of our attention now, not the individual covenant partners. We're going to see how the covenant partners are treated, but I want us to focus on God's covenant program and his faithfulness, his righteousness toward that covenant. Notice again, what is the advantage then to the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. It puts you in a place of great privilege. First of all, you were entrusted, it says, with the oracles of God. You've had a great role in God's economy. What then if some did not believe or were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness or unbelief, will it not nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it? No. My unfaithfulness cannot defeat God's faithfulness is how he's arguing. My act of rebellion cannot cause his covenant to dissipate and come undone. I will have responsibility as a covenant partner and, and thus will be, uh, come under his judgment and discipline if I'm not behaving correctly in that partnership. But the essence of the partnership is that he remains faithful and true. He doesn't leave. He doesn't look at me, separate from me. He continues to have relationship with me. That's the essence of who God is. Notice as this goes on, he says, rather, let God be found true though every man be found a liar. He comes up with a a ridiculous illustration. He says, if everyone in the covenant relationship is found as man, was found to be unfaithful, a liar, God will be true. God will stay true to his covenant. He will remain faithful to his promise of the covenant, regardless of our behavior. Now, that's not uh, freedom to go do what we want. It's rather for God letting us know I am absolutely solid in my commitment to our relationship. We can count on that. And I, God, will be right to behave within my role as covenant partner. We see that Israel was entrusted to represent God. They disobeyed. They were unfaithful. But Israel's disobedience does not cancel God's promise. I want you to think about this with me. I'm going to quote a guy here, and it's going to be a a, a rather long quote. I think his logic is sound, and and we can easily follow it. This was a Hebrew professor of mine at at Dallas Seminary, and he actually told me one time, he says, if you're studying and you need to do a little presentation and you find a quote in your study that says it better than you, just quote it. No reason to try to change it up. Just quote what the guy said that you were trying to say. In this case, he happened to be the one that I quoted. He's going to deal with this issue of will Israel's disobedience cancel God's promise? Can Israel's behavior thwart the plan of God? What we're going to see is answered here what often turns into a basic error for many theologians. We'll see that disobedience does not cancel the promises. It postpones them. Everything I'm going to say after that one sentence just adds to that. So, Focus in on that first sentence just again. Here is answered the basic question of many modern theologians. Disobedience does not cancel the promise. It postpones them. To put it another way, God's covenant promises are sure, but individual participation in them depends on faith and the obedience. You see how both can be happening at the same time? 
The covenant remains sure and strong, but my participation in it and my faith and obedience might be now or my lack of faith might cause my blessing to be postponed. Paul is saying their lack of faith or their unbelief or their unfaithfulness shall not void the faithfulness of God, shall it? No, disobedience cannot do that. The promises rest on the divine character of God. Their disobedience only seems to affect when and how the promises are fulfilled or who has a share in them, but not if they will be fulfilled. God has sworn to it and will not repent. The gifts and callings of God cannot be repented of. If we cannot believe that the promise of Abraham rests on God's faithfulness to that promise and not on collective obedience of the nation, then how can we even begin to believe the promises, for example, of John 3.16? The people of the new covenant have not performed all that well either. We've not been a faithful lot, yet his covenant remains true to us. And he remains a faithful partner. No, God is faithful to keep his promise even if we are unfaithful, for he cannot deny himself. The last sentence comes right out of 2 Timothy that God's faithfulness really becomes the attractor in this thing. It's not a freedom to go do what we want. It's not a freedom to uh, sin and, and carry on. Some of those arguments are, 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 are found throughout the book of Romans. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? No. Shall we be more unfaithful so God can seen, be seen to be righteous? No. But it is true that God and his loyalty to the covenant and thus his covenant people remains the center point of our focus. And that's the reason I wanted to spend just a little moment on that. Israel was entrusted to represent God. They were unfaithful. They disobeyed. Israel's disobedience does not cancel God's promise. So let God be found true, Paul argues, and let everyone then be found a liar if you're going to compare the two. The passage is going to continue now as we end up in this last section in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, focusing on both Gentile and Jew now coming back into the courtroom. And before them, there will be charges made. And before them, proofs will be levied. Relevant cases will be cited. A verdict will be rendered. It's a very sobering scene. Some of the most powerful words in all the Bible are in Romans 3, 9 through 20. For in this section, it is as James is saying, if the Bible is like a mirror, the mirror tells us what we're really like. Romans 3, 9 through 20 lets us know what Adam's race is really like outside the righteousness of Christ. And in accord, it will serve as a great blessing to us For the truth that he will tell us in this section will draw us ever more or should draw us ever more to our absolute desperate need for right standing before God. This should dismiss any thought that we bring a little to the table in our dealings with God. This section is going to be comprised of a charge, proofs that will come against us like a lawyer would bring, and finally a verdict that is rendered. The charge that unfolds says, what then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we are already charged that both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. 
Now we're going to see how he makes his point here in just a moment, but that image is important. I'm charging you Jews, I'm charging you Gentiles, that the canopy of sin is above you and you are under it and you cannot escape it. You are confound in its barriers. Its borders have hemmed you in. You are trapped inside this thing the scripture calls unrighteous or sin. And now he makes his case by quoting from the Old Testament. He's going to say, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Have all turned aside and together have become useless in their pursuit of God their own way. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It's a tough charge. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. And maybe the summation of them all, there's just no fear of God before their eyes. As he analyzes all humanity, he states those things against us and then sort of sums it up. You guys just don't fear the Lord. There's no respect for God in your heart and your behavior demonstrates that. Let's break this down just a bit, see what he does. First of all, do you notice as it is written? His proof comes from God's word itself. It makes sense, right? If God is the standard, Psalm eleven seven, and he loves righteousness, it makes sense that he would go to his very standard to see how we're doing against that standard. It's like a mirror. How are we doing against the truth? The proof will come directly from God's word because it is the right standard for living correctly. And God would be righteous to bring that in. And then I noticed this was interesting. Just like a lawyer, he found seven distinct passages from the Old Testament. Psalms and Isaiah quoted directly some or all of those little short passages that served as condemnations against both Jews and Greeks. From the Bible itself, we stand condemned. As a result of that, We see that every aspect of humanity is unrighteous. As you go back and as you look at those passages in 9 through 20, you'll see these patterns, these aspects come through. First of all, in our morality, none of us do right fully and wholly. Not even one. How about it? Some of us are smart. Some of you all are, right? In our intellect? No, none of you really understand, he says. In our will, I kind of seek for God, yes, but not fully. None of us seek for him fully. Our actions prove that none of us do good according to the standard that God has laid for us. Notice those actions again. Every action that human beings bring about are going to be seen in three, three components here. And they all will render us unrighteous. We'll see that our hands do no good from that passage. We'll see that our mouths speak lies. Our feet are swift to go toward harm and away from peace. It's an overwhelming condemnation. The verdict then comes about. It's going to be one of those cases that we can predict pretty well. Out in the hall waiting for the jury to come out of the room and you're thinking, this didn't go very well. We're not going to do too well in this case. And you're absolutely right. 
The verdict is harsh and all-encompassing, but it's right. It's a fair and correct judgment of us. This is what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What I've underlined is the main point. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The verdict is so powerful. It's so overwhelming. It's frankly so hopeless. And that's good for a moment. Let me keep you there for just a moment. That notice the response. Every mouth is closed. The scene is so powerful in this courtroom. There is no attempt at self-righteousness. There's no good Jewish scribe who said, yes, Lord, but everyone is shut up because of the power of the prosecution and his case. It's overwhelming. All we can do is close our mouths and recognize that we're accountable to God based on the exhaustive data that he's given us in his prosecution of us. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. But right now, this is the bad news portion of the gospel. And we got to slug our way through it a bit to make sure that we appreciate the good news that's coming. We have to wallow a bit in the bad news, because if we fail to recognize the totality of these words, watch what will happen. Your flesh will all of a sudden start to seduce you again and to cause you to think, I'm really not all that bad. Things aren't really all that bad between me and God. If I find myself not being reminded from the mirror of Romans 3, 9 through 20, and I look at at myself in comparison to others or what others might think of me or I of them, all of a sudden a new standard gets created in my head and the bar of God is marginalized and moved over here and rather my own standards creep in. This kicks out that kind of thinking. That's why it's good, because it tells us the truth of our reality before the Lord. The verdict, as you saw, was powerful. No one can fully keep any law code, yet that is the standard. And there is no response to it. The human race is thus guilty before God. The law is good, though, that it shows us our sin, and the law thus shows us our need for righteousness. That's what's coming later in the book of Romans. To appreciate that, we've got to also appreciate this. And so what is to become of us? If if we were in a reading plan and we had to stop reading in Romans 3.20 and you had to go to bed that night and you did not know the story of the Bible, the proper reaction would be, oh my, what is to become of us? All that Adam has produced is corrupt and I am a part of that production. What will happen to us? Is there hope? for the human race. It's hard for us because we know the rest of the story, but train your mind sometime to go back and just act as if you don't know the story because that's how it would have been initially received. Let me give you some thoughts as we conclude. I love this about the Lord. He just tells us the truth, even if it's unpleasant. Sometimes that's just the nature of the truth. It's real. It's the description of reality. And God does not avoid this unpleasant news because it's good for us to know the truth. You see, if there's no awareness of sin, then there's no need for a remedy. That's why we had to go through this tough passage today, is to 
uh, cement in that awareness that we need a remedy because we are quite aware of our sin. As we saw with the Jews can be the same with us. Privilege can be a place also a, a platform for pitfalls. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you've had the privilege of knowing the word of God and parents who cared for you and uh, lived a life of obedience and, and, and goodness before the Lord. Good servant, keep doing that. Don't let that privileged position become a place of pride. Rather use it as a place of ministry for to whom much is given, much is required. Remember the one who obeys is what God is after, not the one who has the pedigree. Four years in seminary, 30 years in ministry. This is all I can come up with at the end here. Only God can fix the mess described in Romans 3, 9 through 20 and the previous sections. Only God can provide the help. And as we sung about it, it's true. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's our hope. That's what we need. He's proved to us today that we don't have any righteousness of our own. Can't use my pedigree, can't use my degrees, can't use my background, can't use any privilege I might have had. I stand only in light of the truth, and the truth is overwhelmingly powerfully judging against me. My mouth is closed. I can't speak in my own defense because I've been so overwhelmingly seen to be guilty. 30 years ago, Next month, my grandmother called me up, asked me if I wanted to go on a date with her. We went out on dates all the time. Her husband had passed a few years before, and Nanny and I would go to such wild places as, oh, Luby's Cafeteria, I think. Uh, We lived in Houston. Sometimes we drove around the loop. How about that for wildness? I, I don't know. But Nanny and I were very close, and we talked about all sorts of stuff. So it wasn't unusual that Nanny would ask me out for a date. And she wanted me to go with her in November, later in November, on a Friday night to go to Rice Stadium. She wouldn't tell me why. I said, I'll go. So she called me each week as the weeks got closer to the event. I finally said, Nanny, you know, what, what's the deal? Where are we going to? I tried to figure it out. You know, I knew it wasn't a football game, maybe a track meet. Couldn't, just didn't know. She finally said, you know, I think I'm just going to go by myself, but I just want you to drop me off. I said, okay, I don't really feel good about you going into Rice Stadium by yourself, but you sure that's what you want me to do? She says, yeah, I'm pretty sure because I don't think you'd want to go to where I'm going. I said, yes, ma'am. She called back another week and I had given it some thought and I was getting my dander up a bit. And I said, Nanny, what is it that you're going to? I might want to go with you. She said, well, there's going to be a man and he's going to talk about God. And you show no interest in such things, which I had not. I was 29 years old. I had been raised in a good home, but I did not know Jesus Christ at all. And she said, I don't want you to go because I think if you go, you'll ruin it for me. (laughs) And I want to hear what this fellow has to say, she said. She had one more week. One more week went by. She knew what she was doing. I called her back and informed her that I was 29 years old. I was a college graduate. I had a full-time job. And if I wanted to go hear a man talk about God, I could. (laughs) Tom Sawyer didn't do it any better when he lured the picket fence into being painted. I went with Nanny and heard a man named Billy Graham talk about God. And his message was Romans 3, 9 through 20. 
exact message that we looked at today in the latter part. And my mouth was closed under the condemnation of sin that he so eloquently brought out. And I'll never forget it. And I've tried to weave it into not only PowerPoints, but the way I speak is he just kept saying, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Even Paul did it as it is written, as it is written. The Bible says this, Buck, what have you got to say? My mouth was closed. I had nothing to say. A month later, I came to Christ. I had a hard heart. It took me a month later, uh, I came to Christ and realized that, in fact, Jesus Christ had died for my sins and rose from the dead. And that by faith in that simple fact, I could be properly related to him and then go about the business of growing in the Lord. And that's my appeal to you this morning. If you're here and you've You've realized that your mouth is closed and you really have no stance before God when it comes to this whole salvation thing. Today is the day of salvation for you. Jesus says, come unto me, all you're weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll give you the righteousness that you need. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, the Bible says. That simple faith will make an eternal difference in your life. And you can be properly related to God. You can be right with him. You can go from here to meeting the standard of God. For those of you that have already come to Christ, don't stand on that privileged position. Don't let that become a pitfall for you. For there's still work to be done. There's still obedience. There's still growth in the Lord. Using the terms from the book of Romans to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what we're about as we move from justification to sanctification. If you're here this morning and know the Savior, let the book of Romans, let this messenger this morning goad you a bit toward further discipleship, further confirmation to the image of Christ. That together, instead of standing before the bar of God condemned, as we've seen today, we can move the scene to the book of Revelation where both Jew and Gentile stand together before God in heaven, rejoicing together. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the privilege we've had this morning of getting in a car or just walking, coming to think about the things of God from the Word of God. I thank you for each one here, Lord. There's too many, Lord, here for us to know all the details of everyone's life, Lord, obviously, but would you work deep in us? Would you convict those areas that need to be revealed? Would you allow the light of your Word to penetrate maybe some dark places that we've not opened up for a while, that as a result of that encounter, we might be more pleasing to you. We might be obedient men and women of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Blake will be back with you next week. I'll see you then.